Good morning, my name is Adam Venable, and as Joe Johnson said last week, I am not a pastor here at Red Mountain Church. I am a pastor who attends Red Mountain Church. Um, my family and I have loved being here the last five years, and I'm very glad to get to open up God's Word with you this morning. When I was getting ready for this passage, it made me think of a book that I read, and uh, the book is called War by Sebastian Unger, or Younger, I think I'm pronouncing that right. And the author, Sebastian Unger, was embedded with a Marine platoon uh, between 2007 and 2008 in the Korangal Valley of Afghanistan, which is considered to be one of the most dangerous parts of Afghanistan. But after spending the time with that combat unit, he wrote this book and he's reflecting on what he saw there in Afghanistan with this uh, unit. And he says, war is big and a sprawling word that brings a lot of human suffering into the conversation, but combat is different. Combat, for some reason, there is a profound and mysterious gratification to the reciprocal agreement to protect someone else with your life. And combat is virtually the only situation where that happens regularly. When men are in combat, they feel most alive, but also the most utilized, the most necessary, the most significant. He says the most clear and certain and purposeful. And then he says, if young men could get that feeling at home, they almost certainly would not want to go to war. What does that say about the human heart? It says that we long for significance. We long to feel that what we do matters, and we long to do it in community. And the gospel, the good news, transforms the way we think about significance and community, because it tells us that our significance, we can't earn it, it has to be a gift, God has to give it to us, but that Jesus has given us gifts to use in community, and that we were made to be both needy, in need of each other's gifts, but also very significant, using our gifts in other people's lives. We're looking at the book of Romans right now, and the book of Romans is very, very important. In the history of the church, St. Augustine was converted because of the book of Romans. Martin Luther, the birth of the whole Protestant uh, part of Christianity, in large part due to the book of Romans. Romans is a very important book. It was written by the Apostle Paul before he was put in prison to this church that was in the capital of the entire Roman Empire. And we are in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Already in Romans, Paul has laid out the gospel, the good news, and now he is talking about how should that affect our life. He's already said, what is the gospel? And now he's talking about how should that affect our life. If you'll look with me, let's read together. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to every everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another." 
Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and our serving, the one who teaches and his teaching, the one who exhorts and his exhortation, the one who contributes and his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we look to you to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together centered around you, Lord Jesus. Strengthen us where we are weak. Bring us back where we've strayed. Draw us to yourself for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On vacation this summer, I picked up a book called The Second Mountain. Anybody heard of this? The Second Mountain by David Brooks. And he's contrasting these two ways of life. A life lived committed to yourself and your happiness and what makes you feel good. And then a different type of life, which is committed to others. And committed to something that's bigger than yourself. And he says this about commitment. He says, our commitments give us freedom. In our culture, we think of freedom as the absence of restraint. That's freedom from. But there is another higher kind of freedom, and that's freedom to. This is the freedom of fullness of capacity, and it often involves restriction and restraint, this type of freedom. You have to chain yourself to the piano and practice for year after year if you want to have the freedom to really play well. You have to chain yourself to a certain number of virtues or habits. If you don't want to be a slave to your desires anymore, the desire for alcohol or the desire for approval, the desire to lie in bed all day long. And that theme of commitment is what I want to talk about first. I want to look at what does it look like to live in your giftedness as a Christian? And if you're not a Christian... How might Jesus have something even better for you living in your giftedness? I want to talk about commitment and the traps and then the presence. Commitment, traps, and presence. And commitment. You see that especially towards the end of the passage. We're going to sort of work backwards. So let's look at these gifts first. These gifts are given by Jesus Christ to Christians in the church. And they're gifts so that we might commit ourselves to doing these things. And I want to give a few qualifiers before we run down the list of these gifts. And the first qualifier is that this list is not exhaustive. There are other lists of gifts, lists of gifts in the New Testament, which mention other things. This list is not exhaustive. And the other thing is that, I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes here. The other thing is that this list is not, uh, does not coincide with your, vo- with your vocation. In other words, you can work for social services for a living, but not have the gift of mercy. You can run uh, a law firm, but not have the spiritual gift of leadership. They don't necessarily coincide. What your vocation is and these spiritual gifts. The other thing I wanted to make sure to mention is that these gifts are not the same thing as spiritual fruit. Right When you grow as a Christian, the Holy Spirit produces fruit. That's not what this is. Because Christians are called to um, grow in all the different types of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. These gifts 
All Christians have them uh, in part, but God gives these specific gifts to specific people in, in more of a fullness than he does just ordinary fruit. We can divide them, I think, for our purposes in terms of word and deed. Uh, it's not black and white completely, but I think it's helpful just to explain it. So what are the first three word gifts that Jesus has given to his church? The first is prophecy. What is that? Does that mean prophecy like Jeremiah, Isaiah? It could. It could mean that. It could also mean the gift we see in the New Testament, where special divine revelation comes through a specific person who's been gifted with the gift of prophecy. How does that apply to us in 2019? Well, now that the canon has been closed, all the special special revelation has been given. We still get to speak the words of God to one another. You exercise not a special revelation gift of prophecy, if you have that gift now, but you use the prophecy that's already been given in the New Testament. We speak words of truth to one another. Then the next is the, uh, the gift of teaching, also a word gift. And what is this? If you have the gift of teaching, what is it not, first of all? The gift of teaching in the church, it's, it's not just that you are super theologically smart. It's not just that you're a, kind of a theological a know-it-all that can, that's read all the books and uh, you know, can quote me everyone from Augustine to Aquinas to Calvin. That's not the gift of teaching. The gift of teaching is being able to explain clearly and with the kindness and love of the gospel what scripture means and what the gospel is. That's the gift of teaching. You can use it one-on-one at a coffee shop. You can do it in a small group. You can stand up on a Sunday morning and preach. You have the gift of teaching. So there's different contexts to it. The third word gift is the gift of exhortation, or some translations will say encouragement. And really what's meant there by exhortation is the gift of what we would consider counseling. Being able to give advice and to draw near to someone who's in distress, who's in trouble, who's lonely. And not just to comfort them with your deeds, but to speak words of truth. To be a counselor. I am pro-professional uh, counseling. Big fan of it. However, the spiritual gift that we're talking about here, of being someone who's able to counsel, to give exhortation, you do not need a professional degree to have this gift. You simply need to be in Christ, and that is it. So those are the three words. What about the, there's four deed, and the first is service. And service just means that you are able to look around and see what needs to be done and to pitch in and do it. When you show up to worship, when you show up to your community group, when you show up uh, to that event that the church is doing, you see what needs to be done and you do it. And you're not that concerned about being with the spotlight because you just love serving. The next is the gift of generosity. And that doesn't just mean that you have a lot of money to give. Although that is part of it. If you have the gift of generosity, you have the resources to give. But it also means that you have the wisdom to know how to use those resources well. You have resources, but you know and you have the wisdom how to use them for the spread of the gospel and for the good of the church. And the next is leadership. And it says to do this with zeal. And the gift of leadership is just the the capacity and the ability to look out over a room, and you don't just think in terms of individuals, but you think in terms of the whole group. If if you're a leader in your small group or in your community group, you're able to think of what's good for the whole group. 
if, uh, if, if you're an elder, you're able to think about what would be good for the whole congregation. Um, if you lead a women's group, you're able to think about not just what's good for each individual woman, but what's good for the entire group. And then finally, the gift of mercy. And the Bible especially emphasizes four categories of people who need the gift of mercy. Orphans and widows and immigrants and the poor. You have the gift of mercy. You have an especially sensitive empathy towards these folks. And you long to draw near to them, not just to speak words of encouragement, but to make the gospel tangible by bringing that meal Um, by loving them in a way that they can feel and sense and see. What should we say about this list um, before we talk about some of the traps? And I'll just say a couple things. Why a list? Why not just say, look, church, Jesus has given you all gifts, so go out and use them. I think one reason is this, is that we tend, as a church, to think of our gifting as one thing. Uh, churches tend to be the mercy church, and we're all about mercy, and we don't really care too much about teaching um, or uh, you know, counseling and uh, drawing near to people in that way. We're all about mercy. And what the list does is it says is that a New Testament church has got all these gifts in it. And some of you, God has made great at mercy, and others great at teaching, and others great at weeping with those who weep and drawing near to them in that way. And the New Testament church has got all three. Not just one. And Paul knows that churches tend towards emphasizing just one, and he wants to lay out a list. And the other thing I'll say is this. Um, Why is he so repetitive as he gives the list? You know, he might have just said, look, here are the different gifts. I'll, I'll name them for you. Prophecy, service, teaching. But instead he uses these strange phrases. Uh, he says, service in your serving. Teaching, you know, one who teaches in his teaching. That's kind of a strange way to say it. And his point is this. You can have the gift of teaching. Jesus gave it to you by his grace, but not use it. You can have the gift of mercy. He has poured out this gift on you to empathize with others and to give them tangible signs of the gospel, but you don't do anything about it. And what he's saying is, You have these gifts, now go use them. We're in the sanctification part of Romans, right? How should this affect your life? Paul's trying to say, using these gifts, it's not optional. It's not, if you have enough energy, if you get around to it, try to use your gifts. It's, you have been given gifts, you must use them. You must commit to them. And committing to them, you will find your joy. And... That's a good segue. Let's talk about some of the traps. And these traps, I I think, fit into two categories of a a secular trap and a religious trap. We're trying to live in our giftedness. What does it look like living in our giftedness? Here are the different gifts. What are some of the traps that we might fall into? I was listening to a podcast recently, and they were summarizing what do we mean in 2019 when we say, you know, I just want to live a good life. What do we mean by that? And not what, not what the Bible says, but just what do we mean in general? And he said, it's basically this. You want to live a good life, we say. Well, look, um, try to be happy. Like, um, work on that. Um, try to feel good. 
you know, go on vacation and buy stuff. And if you can do that, then you'll be happy. And in fact, we talk, we talk about our giftedness in terms of this too. Why have you been gifted to do what you do? Well, it's in order so that you might be fulfilled and that you might be happy. Why have you been um, gifted in that way in the church? The trap is to think you've been gifted that way for you, in order for you to be happy, for you to be fulfilled. And Paul wants to speak against this. And you see it where he says that we should think with sober judgment according to the measure of the faith that's been assigned to us. Paul says, think with sober judgment. As you think about how to live in your gifts, be sober about it. And by sober, they just mean the opposite of drunkenness. Think carefully. Right? A drunk doesn't live in the real world. He doesn't think carefully about himself or about the people around him. And Paul is saying, be careful and think carefully about what's real. What's real about you, what's real about the world. Be sober as you think about how can I live in whatever gift that Jesus has given me. Because we are prone just to want to do whatever is good for us. C.S. Lewis, uh, one of my favorite quotes he has is that, Happiness is the one thing that you will not get by aiming for it. You aim for truth, you commit to truth, living a life of truth. You'll get truth and you'll be happy. You just aim for happiness and you will get neither. And the same is true about the commitments that we make and the way that we use our gifts. And our temptation, and I think especially those of you who just feel tired, anybody feel tired this morning? Do you just feel exhausted? What's the temptation when you're tired? It is to live out of the flesh. Right? To go from one piece of candy to the next, trying to maintain. He uses the word sober here. That might be for you alcohol. It might be sex. Workaholism. Paul is saying, live soberly. Be careful. You will not be happy that way. You will not be able to live in community and live a life that is full of joy and gratitude, simply devoted by making yourself happy. Be sober. Um, think, think about your children for a minute. I think it's so easy as parents sometimes to make the, you know, what's the horizon that you're aiming for with your kids? And it is so easy for that horizon to be, well, I want them to be healthy. I don't want them to do anything that might embarrass me. And I want them to grow and be able to get a job or get married, be financially secure. And I want uh, me and my kids, I want them to like like me. I want them to love me. And that is as far as we get. What is Jesus' dream for your kids? And what if it's different than yours? What if Jesus' dream for, for one of your children is not that they get married? But he has given them a gift. And he wants them to use it. He has given them the gift of mercy. And he wants them to knock it out of the park uh, for the next 60 years using their gift of mercy in the church. Paul wants us to be sober and be careful about what we long for. What's going to make us happy? What's the other trap? And I think it's the religious trap. And you know, religion basically says this. Uh, if you do bad, God will punish you. But if you do good, God will, God will reward you. It's the basic religious life. 
Do bad, you get punished. Do good, you get rewarded. How does this affect living in giftedness? Well, when you're living in giftedness that way, it means that you're constantly trying to be awesome so that God's going to make you happy. Maybe if I go volunteer for that committee, God's going to be proud of me, and then I'll be able to make more money and buy the car that I want, move into that neighborhood that I'd like to live in. The religious trap. And, And you see it where he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. You Romans, uh, Red Mountain Church, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. What happens when you think of yourself more highly than you ought to? People who think that way cannot admit neediness. People who are prideful and full of themselves, they cannot be needy. What is the presupposition if you have a gift of mercy? There is someone who needs mercy. You cannot use your gift of mercy unless there's someone out there who's willing to say, I need some mercy. And you cannot admit that while you're thinking about yourself more than you ought to. Paul is saying, be careful. Humble yourselves and realize that God saved you. God saved you. He rescued you not to be strong. He saved you and rescued you so that you might live in need of other people in the body of Christ. He rescued you so that you might grow and grow in your ownership of, I can't do this by myself. And I really mean that. I need the body of Christ in my life. I feel this as I minister at UAB. I I get up every Thursday night and I preach the gospel of John. And I I do that, I hope, because God has gifted me to do it. But every week, there there are things in me that make me realize I I cannot do this on my own. I am prone to discouragement. And some of you have been vital in my life, encouraging me so that I can go out there and use my gift. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. You're needy. You need other people here. And we don't get together just to have our needs met, but we are here to be the body of Christ for each other. Last point. We've talked about uh, the commitment of these gifts and the trap of these gifts. And lastly, I want to end by talking about the presence of, of living in giftedness. The presence of living in giftedness. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and I'm not trying to set that up before we get there, but I kind of am. What does the Lord's Supper mean? Why do we do this? One of the things that gets left out many times, I don't think about it a lot of times, is that the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was crucified, and he now gives himself, who died on the cross, to all those who draw near to him. But it's also a symbol and a sign that we are united to Jesus together. That we are not individuals in an individual relationship with God, but we are in Him as we partake of one, uh, one bread. The same cup has been, broken for, or has been poured out for all of us. And this oneness in Jesus, I love the way that Paul describes it here. He says that we, though many 
And he doesn't say, you know, even though there are a lot of us, look, you've all been given a gift, and so go out there and do it. That's not what he says. He says, we, though many, we are one. And we are one not in our zeal to go be the body of Christ. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, look, we're one and that, look, we're all having a hard time. We all suffer together. We're all one in our brokenness and our suffering. We're good at that, right? We're good at being one in our brokenness and in our suffering. That's not what Paul says. He says, we are one body in Christ. It's in the God that took on flesh and died for us. We are one in him. Not because of our efforts or our how, far, how hard we're trying to be the body of Christ. It's like in marriage. You're not trying to be one flesh. No, you are one flesh. And then go live that out. He's saying, look, you're not trying to be the body of Christ. You have faith in Jesus. You are the body of Christ. He says you are individually members of one another. What does that mean? And I'm going to read just a little bit of... This is a section from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which you don't have to believe all that to be a member of Red Mountain Church, but if you want to be a minister uh, in our denomination, these are the things that we commit to um, saying that this is what the Bible teaches. And there's a chapter called The Communion of Saints, and it is all about this. And this is what it says. All saints, that's just a Christian, that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces and his sufferings and his death and his resurrection and his glory and being united to one another in love. They have communion in each other's gifts and in each other's graces. And um, maybe this is weird, says something strange about me that I get emotional reading the Westminster Confession of Faith. <laughs> but here I am. They are obliged... They are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to conduce to their mutual good, both inward man and outward man. That means we're committed to helping one another in our needs, both your inner spiritual needs and our outer needs, bringing a meal to that person. Saints, by profession, are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion and worship and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification and also in relieving each other in outward things. What does all that mean? It means that living in giftedness means when we have believed in Jesus, we are united to him and we are united to one another because we need each other. Because Jesus Christ could have given everything to me that I need without any of you. He could have done that. He is God, infinite and eternal and unchangeable. He does not need us. But he gave Paul grace and he gives us grace because God wants us to experience the good news of the gospel through each other as you use your gift of teaching, your gift of leadership. God wants us to experience his grace through each other because he is present with us. It's his presence that we need. We need to be present in him and he's promised that we are. We need him to be present with us so that we can live in our giftedness and not run away 
from the things that God has called us to do. And especially if you're, I mentioned just being tired, and those of you who went to the men's retreat this weekend, I know you're all tired, those of you who made it. What if you're here this morning and you're thinking, Adam, I know the Bible says I'm supposed to be using these gifts that Jesus has given me. I'm trying to maintain my sanity in my marriage. I'm trying to maintain my sanity with my children. I'm trying to maintain my sanity as a single person. And I just don't know if I have the energy to use whatever gift uh, Jesus might have given me. What's the good news for you? And this is what I would say. If you feel like you can't do this by yourself, like, like you were just dying on the vine, you're like a branch broken off the tree that's just kind of dying there. What's the good news for you? So even when you feel disconnected, Jesus has made you a part of the body of Christ, however you feel. And the second thing I would say is this, is that if you feel so needy that you just, you just can't take another step, that is exactly what it feels like uh, to be a hand or a foot or a kidney in the body. You cannot function alone. You can't do it. And that's not God's plan A. Or Sorry, I got this backwards. <laughs> that's not God's plan B. That is his plan A for your life, for Red Mountain Church, for the worldwide church. To live in our giftedness with each other, in his presence, admitting our needs to each other, Because that's the only way that those of you who've been gifted to encourage me can encourage me is if I tell you, you know, I'm so discouraged. I I am so discouraged. Would you pray for me? What an amazing place the body of Christ is. What a life of significance that Jesus died on the cross to give us. And I know some of you have experienced that. And just as a way to end today, why don't we just pray that God would do that more and more in our fellowship. And that God would add to our fellowship those who would be part of this body of Christ. Would y'all pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would lift our eyes to you, Jesus. When we are tired, we pray that you would be our strength. When we are lonely, we pray that you would draw near to us. When we don't know what to do, would you give us wisdom to know what to do? When there is unemployment and joblessness in our life, please help us, please provide for us. When we just need someone to talk to, Would you be there to listen to us, Lord Jesus? And would you even help us to see where you've gifted us? That you might use us to do all those things in the lives of each other. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.